You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edgy Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Dylan William. While this podcast is an auditory medium, to paint a picture for listeners, Dylan was once described by Schools Week as looking like a cross between a wizard and a rock star. Dylan has indeed what might be considered a rock star status in education. He's Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at University College London and renowned as a global authority on formative assessment. Dylan's career has spanned from Teacher of Mathematics to Dean of School and Assistant Principal at King's College London to Senior Research Fellow at the Education Testing Service to working all over the world with teachers on developing formative assessment understandings and practices. His books include Embedded Formative Assessment, Leading Teacher Learning and Creating the Schools Our Children Need. Welcome, Dylan. Good to be here. Let's start the conversation. One area that I'm particularly interested in is some of the material from your book, Leading Teacher Learning. So at my school, I'm responsible for teacher learning and in my first presentation to staff, so it was day one of my role when I began at this school in 2020, just pre-pandemic, I shared an excerpt of a 2012 presentation in which you explained that teaching is so challenging, it can never be perfect and that every teacher needs to commit to improving our practice. And you said, until we retire or die. So can you talk a little about the importance of that idea about creating a culture of continuous improvement in schools and maybe what the ingredients of that kind of a culture are? I think the starting point was what Paul Black and I wrote in the booklet in 1998, Inside the Black Box, where we actually pointed out that government policies treated schools, particularly classrooms, as black boxes. They measured outputs, sometimes they measured inputs, but they had very little focus on the inside of the classroom. And we pointed out that if you really wanted to improve school processes, you really needed to change what's happening inside the classroom. And so that idea was taken a step further in this idea of leadership for teacher learning, where I suggested that the single most important job of school leaders is to create a learning environment for their teachers. In the same way that no teacher can do the learning for her students, but she can create an environment in which her students learn. No leader can do the learning for her teachers, but she can create an environment in which those teachers continue to improve their practice. And I think it's particularly important now because we have a culture where we want to become more systematic about school improvement. And in many schools, this comes down to a kind of educational triage. We work out you know, which are the teachers who are hopeless and we get rid of them, which teachers are okay and we leave them alone, which teachers are struggling and we give them support. First of all, I don't think we can identify those teachers who are not very effective with any accuracy. But more importantly, even if we could, if you only improve the teachers who are struggling, then the kinds of changes you're going to produce to the average quality of what's happening in classrooms across a school are so small that they're not going to make a difference. The only way to have schools helping young people be ready for what they're going to face when they leave school is to have every single teacher getting better, even if they're already the best teacher in the state. I think that's the shift we need. And that was this idea of leadership for teacher learning. The most important single factor is helping every teacher get better. Not because they're not good enough, but because they can be even better. How do we do that? Well, I think the crucial focus is the role of leaders is to help identify what are likely to be the most powerful priorities 
for development. Right now, I think it's probably uh, curriculum and formative assessment. And setting out an agenda, this is what we're going to get better at. But then I think the responsibilities of the leaders should shift. So the leaders identify the strategic direction, but then it's over to the teacher. So the the non-negotiable is, if you're a teacher in this school, you're going to be getting better at something. That's one. Number two is, it's going to be something that benefits our students. Beyond that, I think the leader's role is to say to the teacher, okay, so what do you want to get better at this year? What's your evidence that it's going to help our kids? Okay, that's what you're going to plan to do. How can I help? And then what evidence are you going to bring to our next meeting about whether you've got any better? It could be videos of classroom practice. It could be questionnaires from students. It could be student test results. But the important point is that we create an expectation that every teacher will be exploring their own practice and bringing evidence of the changes in their practice to those meetings with their supervisors. That, I think, is the most concrete way I can suggest of creating the idea of schools as a kind of learning organisation, of a continually improving organisation. So the baseline is that it's entirely non-negotiable that we're all working to get better, but there are different ways that we might go about doing that, hopefully evidence-based ways. And you call that, I think, in the book, the love the one you're with strategy that we should be working with everyone that we have in teaching. And I think that's really interesting at the moment. There's a lot of talk about retention and recruitment crises with teachers in an education. And it's uh, election time here in Australia. And so there's lots of talk about the kinds of things that politicians are going to do to throw money at getting better teachers into the profession or in teacher education programs and so on. But I think it seems really important to work with the teachers that are already in the profession to support them uh, and to develop them. What do you think is happening around the world at the moment in that space? Do you think we're on the right track to work with teachers and to keep them in the profession and develop them? Or are we doing some things wrong, do you think? Well, the first is that we conceptualise teacher preparation as being a kind of fixed-term event. So, you know, there's a big debate in many countries about whether teacher preparation should be a one-year programme tacked onto the end of a three-year degree, or should it be a four-year program? My view is it should be a 40-year program. The idea is we conceptualize teacher preparation together with the continuing professional development that every teacher gets for the rest of their careers. Uh, I don't think very, I don't think any country is doing that perfectly. I think that there are certain systems like um, Shanghai and Singapore. I don't believe the results we get in PISA and TIMS are due to the educational systems of those countries, not so much as they are to do with the, the presence of private tuition. But I think what they're doing is actually entirely sensible. So, for example, Shanghai has a system in which 13 steps on the main teacher professional scale, 13 increments that you can get. And the last four are reserved for teachers who spend at least two years teaching in hard-to-staff schools. And the other two are there for those who've been mentoring other teachers and whose performance as mentors is assessed by the people that they're mentoring. So there are some systems in the world where we have a very nice set of alignments. They're actually creating incentives for people to do what we want them to do. But in most countries in the world, people are still trying to, um, in Linda Darling Hammond's memorable phrase, they're trying to fire their way to Finland. And you know, basically, the, the research on teacher evaluation is so clear and so at variance with what people believe it says. The fact is, we can't even reach chance levels of identifying more effective teaching by observing it. Experienced school leaders can't actually judge good teaching better than flipping a coin. And nobody believes this until you look look at the research evidence. 
But the fact is that some teachers are really effective for helping students pass this year's test. And some teachers are really good at helping children pass next year's test. And so particularly in high stakes settings like NAPLAN in Australia, like standardized testing in the United States, we have teachers who actually got quite good value added ratings for this year by teaching to this year's test, but their children are less well prepared for next year's work. And so the conclusion, anybody who looks at the data seriously, we aren't able to measure teacher quality with any accuracy. We know what it consists of. We know how to get more of it. And so the idea is, let's stop trying to work out where the teachers are in this continuum and help them move forward. That's the shift that I think just about every country needs to make. There's no evidence that actually getting smarter people into teaching has any impact. There's no evidence that people with higher levels of qualifications are any more effective as practitioners. And so I think we need to get away from these kinds of simplistic ideas towards this idea that teaching is a, is, is a difficult, challenging craft, and we need to support people to stay in there. And then we need to think about why people are leaving. And so you've got issues around workload, issues around people behavior, for example. So teachers often feel, don't feel supported. I think in many countries, we've gone way too far towards the rights of the child who's behaving badly and forgetting about the rights of the children in the classroom with that child who aren't able to learn as a result. And so all those kinds of things contribute to um, to workload. And so, you know, I, I think that a lot of schools in a, in a lot of countries are actually doing precisely the wrong things. So I'm not currently very optimistic that certainly the, the rich, the Anglophone countries are doing the right things to address this really staggering turnover that we have. And it seems to me to be getting worse, particularly in shortage subjects like physics, computer science, where very few countries seem to me to be attracting the best um, the people with the subject knowledge that they need to actually inspire the next generation of teachers. The trouble is when you have such poor quality teaching because people aren't specialists in that subject, then people don't get become specialists in that subject themselves. And therefore, you know, 20 years down the line, you've got even fewer people wanting to teach that subject. That talk about specialist teachers reminds me a little of some of the content in your Creating the Schools Our Children Need book, where you talk about the importance of building up the content of long-term memory and giving students more knowledge to think with and to think in more powerful ways. And that book came out in 2018, if I remember, about the same time as our then chief scientist, Alan Finkel, was at a conference. And he said something that I think resonated with the that idea of knowledge-rich curriculum and, and teaching students content and becoming specialists in an area. He talked about the fact that in his meetings with employers, no one had ever said to him, gosh, we don't have enough people who know how to collaborate. But rather they said to him things like that they couldn't access knowledge specialists like software engineers, mathematicians, scientists who knew those kinds of things. So some of the things we hear in education are things like that we should be focusing on skills and capabilities and that we don't need to focus on content because students can Google everything anyway. So can you talk a bit about why that's a problematic view to have and that we do need those that specialist knowledge and a content-rich curriculum? Look, it would be great if we could teach children to think critically in the abstract. You know, let, let's have some critical thinking lessons and you know, we'll teach them to think critically and that means they can think critically everywhere. I mean, it's a really attractive idea. It just happens to be completely wrong. It's understandable where this idea comes from. If you ask mathematicians and historians to talk about critical thinking, they say very similar things. And therefore, it's very tempting to believe that critical thinking is one skill. But we know that it's not, because we know that no amount of training 
pupils to think critically in history has any impact on their ability to think critically in mathematics. So this thing that we call critical thinking is a set of superficially similar, but in fact, extremely diverse, disciplinary specific capabilities. And that's where I think people have been misled by this idea of a skills agenda. Now, I'm all for young people having skills. I want them to be able to think critically, to solve problems, to collaborate, to communicate, to be creative. But the way that you do that is within the disciplines. You know, blowing through the wrong end of a trumpet is not creative. Miles Davis is creative. And the research on creativity shows that being creative requires massive amounts of disciplinary specific knowledge. The definition of creativity that I like is having novel ideas that have value. And too often people focus on the first half of that definition, having novel ideas. But they've got to have value. They've got to be relevant to that discipline. And therefore, because a lot of people have been trying to do a lot of things in that discipline for hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years, you actually have to be on top of your game to come up with something really new. The interesting thing about novelty too, I think, so you, you're originally um, a musician and my, my first degree is in fine art. And the idea of creativity, even if you're just looking at novelty, is that you don't actually know if something's creative until you know what's come before and what already exists. You need to know what it is that you are creating on. Otherwise, you don't know that you're being novel. You might think that you're coming up with something new, but it's actually something that's already been done. Yeah. And of course, there's two kinds of already been done. There's something that you actually heard somebody else do and you didn't realize that you'd heard it and you didn't remember that you'd heard it. It feels novel. And the other thing is just things spontaneously get invented um, in different places at different times. So that's why I think you do need to be quite kind of broadly familiar with the field. The other thing I'd like to say is that there is this idea that, you know, in this day and age, uh, knowledge isn't important. You can always Google it. And I think this may be the most pernicious idea that, that, that has been taken to hold over the last 20 years, because it suggests that a repository of information isn't important. And the fact is, it's crucial because of the nature of our human cognitive architecture, if you like, right? the way our brains work. The fact is that working memory is limited in capacity and duration. It's about 20 seconds in duration. There's a debate about what the capacity is. Um, George Miller famously said the magic number seven plus or minus two. And more recently, Cowan has suggested there's actually four. But it depends where your threshold is. So if you want 95% of the population to be able to do it, then yeah, four is the answer. If you're happy with the average, it's about seven. So those figures aren't in conflict but they're very limited. So let me give you a really concrete primary school example. Child is working on a problem and they need to know what six times six is. So one child knows that six times six is 36 and they proceed with the problem. Another child doesn't know that six times six is 36, but does know that three sixes is 18 and therefore they can double 18 to get 36. And that's okay, isn't it? No, it's not because they've used valuable short-term working memory capacity to actually derive something that the other child didn't need to and therefore, they've slowed themselves down in solving the problem. And so it is, I think, quite important to understand that when people get better at something, it's usually because they actually have far richer, better connected banks of concepts, ideas, sources, experiences, and knowledge. As John Sweller, the Australian psychologist, says, Novices have to use thinking skills. Experts use knowledge. 
And we, we, we forget that the reason that experts are so expert is because of this extraordinary web of understandings and experiences that they have. And that's why, according to the work of Andres Ericsson, it takes 10 years of deliberate practice to build that up. You know, it's, it's not becoming sharper in thinking. It's having, as you said earlier, more to think with. It, it would be great if we could just sharpen kids' thinking, but actually we can't. We need to give them the tools to think with. And I'm just thinking about how that plays out in the classroom. So at the moment, I'm preparing my year 12s for their mid-year exams and we're doing we're talking about things like retrieval practice. How do they know that they've got those things in their memory that, and they can retrieve them? Uh, space practice and interleaving you know, what are the ways in which they can, rather than sitting with their books artfully spread around them in a way that might please their parents because they say that they're studying, what does study actually look like uh, and how do they leverage their own cognitive architecture to make sure that they can be successful? But that's probably still fairly short term uh, for an exam kind of scenario. But how else do you think that knowledge of how we think and how we remember in our memory, how else might that play out in the classroom and what, how might teachers use that in their work? Well, I, I think there's several different sort of levels of response to that question. The first one is just giving every single child a user manual for the human brain. So the reason that children revise for tests in such an ineffective way is because it feels right. So rereading feels good. If you read something yesterday and you reread it today, it feels good. I know this. It's familiar. But of course, that's because, in the language of Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, that retrieval strength is high. But that can atrophy quite quickly. What's important is that it's actually well connected to your existing banks of information and knowledge, what the, the Bjorks call storage strength. And so just getting children to understand that the fact that something feels familiar doesn't mean that you learned it. You need to think, well, did I, well, did I look at this yesterday? And you need to be very suspicious. You know, and this is something that all of us have. I've lost track of the number of times I've put something in my freezer and I haven't bothered to label it because I know I'm going to rem remember what it is. And six months later, I take out this frozen mass and I have no idea what it is. Now, the fact that I <laughs> forgot is not interesting. What is interesting is how certain I was that I would remember and I was wrong. Mm. So the starting point is just understanding how our brains work. Just at that, not not in the neuroscience sense, but in that, in, that, in that cognitive sense of you can fool yourselves very easily. So I think that the the findings that you mentioned, particularly on distributed practice, lead to some really quite radical curricular implications. So coming back to something when it's a bit less familiar means the time you spend on that is going to be more effective than if you come back to it the next day. So rather than having, say, two weeks on equations and graphs, you might have Mondays on equations and graphs and Tuesdays on probability and Wednesdays on statistics. And that same study time would lead to better long-term learning because students are being forced to come back to something when it's a bit less familiar. And because retrieval strength is lower, the actual work has a bigger impact on story strength, how well you've learned it. In primary schools, for example, rather than having a maths hour, we could have 20 minutes first thing in the morning, 20 minutes before lunch, and 20 minutes in the afternoon. So I think that these kinds of insights from cognitive science about the way that our brains work produce some quite radical proposals for how we might restructure our school days, our school weeks and terms. I, I think the other thing is, and this is where I think it's this is the most exciting time to be alive, we have researchers like the Bjorks, like Daniel Willingham, keen to learn from teachers about how these ideas play out in the classroom. 
So Ollie Lovell has just worked with John Sweller to produce a guide to cognitive load theory in action. And what is fascinating is the scientists are saying, well, this is the, this is our understanding of the science. And what you're suggesting sounds to me like it might be sensible. You know, we haven't had that genuinely equal collaboration before. This current generation of, of cognitive scientists are very open to working with teachers. And teachers are picking up these ideas and trying them out. And I think it is genuinely the most exciting time I can remember because the cognitive science is beginning to actually generate theories, testable hypotheses that teachers can then explore in their own practice. I think that's the really interesting thing for me right now is teachers engaging in the research and understanding that it doesn't tell them what to do, but it does give you some avenues to explore that will mean your work is more likely to help your pupils than if you just go with the latest fad or just go with your hunches. And I think that is something that comes through in all of your work is that research can tell teachers and can tell school leaders and schools and system leaders where we might best spend our time, but trusting our professionalism and our context, but then applying that. And certainly the most influential work of yours is around formative assessment, uh, the work that you did with Paul Black and the work that you've done since then. Uh, and that's probably, I can speak personally as that's something that's really shaped what I do in my classroom. And some of my takeaways were things like making the classroom a place where all students can be called upon to contribute, focusing carefully on the purpose and usefulness of feedback in helping the student to improve next time rather than what you sometimes call as the post-mortem of this is what you did badly last time. And the thing that I think really has affected what I do with my students is the idea that the student needs to act on the feedback and the student or recipient of the feedback needs to be the one who's actually doing the most work with that feedback rather than the person giving it. Because I think a lot of teachers take a lot of pride in the the work that they put into commenting on student work and marking books. And, you know, they feel like that's really helpful and that's really part of their role. But actually what that taught me was, oh, okay, who's doing the thinking here and who's doing the work and who needs to do the learning? Well, it's the students and not me, the teacher. So those are some of the things that have influenced what I do in my feedback practices. But what would you say are those key things that teachers can be aware of and that they can apply in their classrooms with formative feedback, formative assessment? Well, I think you've given a pretty good summary there. I, mean, I think the most ex- extraordinary thing, I think, is that Paul Black and I, in our review of research, came across this rather remarkable paper on feedback by two American psychologists, Kluger and Denisi. In 1996, they reviewed 3,000 research research reports on feedback in schools, colleges, workplaces. And they did the traditional thing of doing a meta-analysis. They came up with an effect size of 0.4. But then on the last page of their very, very dense article, they said, this is irrelevant. Because they said that even if you get a big effect size, if you get that big effect size by having the pupils become more dependent on the feedback, then you haven't done much good. What you need to be doing is focusing what feedback does to pupils. And so what is depressing to me is feedback researchers are still trying to figure out, you know, should feedback be immediate or should it be delayed? Should it be specific or should it be generic? Should it be constructive or should it be critical? And none of those matter as much as what the pupil does with the feedback. So I now say to teachers, you know, the only good feedback is feedback that gets used by pupils. You know, if you're getting more of what you want from your pupils, it's good feedback. If you're getting less of what you want from your pupils, it's bad feedback. But that other point that you mentioned, and I think it took me a while to kind of crystallize this. Many teachers, certainly, you know, the, the martyrs to their marking on Sunday afternoons. I mean, I certainly have done as much of that as many people have. And the trouble is, the fundamental idea is that you think that the 
The purpose of feedback is to improve the work, and it's not. The purpose of feedback is to improve the learner. And I would even go even further now by saying, actually, the main purpose of feedback is to support self-regulated learning. The idea is that good feedback equips the learner with the skills that they need to look after their own learning more effectively. So I think that to, to crystallize all this, I would say that good feedback works towards its own redundancy. Good feedback makes future feedback less necessary. There'll always be a role for feedback because none of us can be completely autonomous, self-regulating learners. But the idea that good feedback builds capacity in the learner, I think is a very useful touchstone for helping teachers decide what kind of feedback is most appropriate. Yeah, so that clarity of purpose around the feedback being about allowing and encouraging and facilitating the student to grow in their own learning and understanding their capacity to respond to that as an opportunity to grow, but then also to continue to be reflective. We talked earlier about a culture of continuous improvement for teachers, but also that mm. culture of continuous improvement in the classroom, that the non-negotiable here is that we're all going we're all going to improve and that learning is never finished. It's whether it's a career in teaching or a class of mathematics, that it's ongoing. And you talked about the, you know, the Sunday afternoon, sometimes, you know, as an English teacher, sometimes the marking is just kind of never ending. But what would you say to teachers who are worried that focusing on formative assessment might require them to, like, whether it's going to increase their workload or they have to do something differently? What what would you sort of say to people who are worried about what that means for them maybe having to do more or do things differently? From the outset, I think I've been very clear that teachers, you know, as long as I've been a teacher, as long as I've been working with teachers, my sense is that most teachers are working as hard as they can right now. So any suggestion for education improvement that requires teachers working harder than they are right now is just a non-starter. So the question is, how can teachers use the time they've got? And so I say to school leaders, start from the assumption your teacher's plates are full. Before you can put anything else on the plate, you've got to take something off. So then I get school leaders to say, so what are you going to give teachers permission to stop doing so they've got time to work on getting better as teachers? And they can't do it. They go through the list of all the things, can't stop that, can't stop that. They can't stop doing any of it. And that's because they're looking for bad things. Now, in the private sector, there's often quite a lot of waste. So improvement is very easy to secure. You just stop doing the things that either don't work or actually undermine your efforts. But in education, practically everything that teachers do is good. So what most school leaders find it hard to acknowledge is that the essence of effective improvement, effective leadership in schools, is stopping teachers doing good things to give them time to do even better things. Let's take feedback. I often say to teachers, I think you're spending too much time marking. And they're saying, are you saying that marking is no good? No, marking is good. But just consider that that hour you spent marking could have been spent in a different way that would have resulted in even more student progress. So one of the ideas I floated in a book with Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson was this idea of four quarters marking. So of course, teachers should give detailed feedback on the work that pupils do, but you very quickly get to a situation of diminishing returns. And if you mark everything that your pupils do, then your teaching is probably gonna be really pretty poor because you're not having any time left to spend on planning good lessons. So my suggestion was 25% proper marking, detailed comment-based marking, building capacity in the learner. 25% whole class marking. Take all the books of the class, look through them all, and quickly think, 
what do I need to go over with the whole class? Because these are the things that lots of students are having difficulty with. 25% peer assessment, partly because you, there's more direct help, but also because the students who give help often benefit as much as those who receive help, and then 25% self-assessment. So four quarters, 25% traditional comment-based marking, 25% whole class marking, 25% peer assessment, 25% self-assessment. I'm not going to go to the stake on those percentages, but just that idea that we can move away from marking everything towards something that's maybe more likely to be effective in helping our pupils make better progress without increasing teacher workload. And I think there's a parent and student education piece there as well, where there's maybe certain expectations about the fact that every piece of work would be looked at or annotated. But actually, if we can talk about where the bang for buck is, where the better things are rather than just the good things, uh, then that's something that also, um, because teachers will often say to me, oh, but I'm worried what the parents will say if I don't do X. Um, So I think being really clear about what it is that has that effect on student learning that we know as practitioners and professionals. I think school leaders have a role here. I think school leaders need to be saying to parents, you do not want us marking everything your child does. Because if we mark everything your child does, then we won't have any time left over for planning really good lessons. Getting parents to understand that a school where teachers are are marking everything a child is doing is not a good school because they're spending time on things that have less value for their child's learning than other things they could be spending their time on. I think the the school leaders need to be upfront about this. The governing body, the trustees of the school, they need to be on board with this as well, so that when parents do an end run around the teacher and around the, the principal to appeal to some higher authority, everybody says, no, marking everything is a really bad idea. I agree. I think school leadership definitely has to hold the line on what it is that we believe, what it is that we know is good practice, and be clear about that with parents and the community. One thing that I sort of circle around when I look at the work on formative assessment, um, I know I've seen on one of your slides before the sort of columns of what works better, best, not so well, maybe well, those kind of things. And one of the things that comes up as maybe not so good is differentiation and responsive teaching comes up as higher and formative assessment as very high. So I wonder if you could just tease out the difference between differentiation and responsive teaching and formative assessment. Like how do you see those as different? Because they're all kind of about getting enough information about where the students are at in their learning to make changes as a teacher. So how are they different? Let's start with responsive teaching. I coined that phrase um... I'm sure I'm not the first person to coin that phrase, but I hadn't heard it used by other people. Um, When I was working with South Australia teachers, I was trying to get them to understand that teaching needs to be responsive to student needs. The point I made was that, for me, responsive teaching is just one part of formative assessment. Because of this idea that the purpose of feedback is to build capacity in learners, then by focusing on formative assessment, you're focusing on the role of the teacher. And so, yes, that's an important focus. But we also need to think about peer assessment and self-assessment and sharing learning intentions. So for me, responsive teaching is two-fifths of formative assessment. When we come to the issue of differentiation, I think the question for me is one of cost-effectiveness. So we know that one-to-one tuition is a highly effective form of education. And so the aim of personalization or differentiation is to try to bring to group teaching the benefits of one-to-one tuition. So let me say at the outset, I'm going back to the work of David Azubel back in the 1960s, he said very clearly, 
The most important single factor influencing learning is what the learner already knows. Ascertain this and teach accordingly. And because pupils do not learn necessarily what we teach, we have to assess to find out where to start. So differentiation in terms of prior achievement is not only okay, it's absolutely essential because good teaching starts where the pupils are, not where we'd like them to be. Beyond that, I don't think there's much evidence for the effectiveness of differentiation of any kind, and even less evidence for its cost effectiveness. So sometimes teachers are asked to prepare three lessons for the same class, one for the higher achievers, one for the average students, and one for the lower achievers. That's a massive amount of extra work, and as I said, you know, even if it is effective, the impact on student achievement is small and the time for teachers to produce that kind of differentiation is much greater. We know that differentiation in terms of people's learning styles is a complete waste of time. I should qualify that. Some people believe that learning styles don't exist. I'm not that clear whether they exist or not. What I do know is there's no evidence right now that customizing teaching to take into account people's learning styles has any impact on their progress. You know, we have some pupils who don't like writing very much and they could come up with much better stories if we ask them to speak them into a, into a recording device. That's true, provided you understand that you're not assessing writing. You're assessing speaking and listening. So for me, I think the crucial thing is when you're differentiating, what are you differentiating? Are you differentiating the way in which the pupil learns something, the speed at which they learn something? Or even what are they going to learn? Now, you know, it's very easy to come up with a kind of, we know we want all our pupils to do this. And most education systems in primary say all pupils have to learn the same stuff. Then we have some, um, some variations. So in Germany, for example, at the age of 10, students are tracked into one of three kinds of secondary school. One for the academic, one for the more vocational, and one for the general. The Americans pretend that this doesn't happen until 18. Um, my view is that's too late. The German system is far too early. At some point, we should actually accept that some students would not be well advised beyond the age of 14, 15 to pursue an academic track. So I can see a rationale for differentiation of goals, what even these pupils should be learning at some point in secondary school. There's then the issue of things like culturally responsive pedagogy or culturally relevant pedagogy. And of course, we should actually treat our learners as unique individuals. But the danger is when people invoke culture as opposed to individual variation, it often becomes a kind of essentializing process that you assume that because this student comes from this culture, that they're going to learn in a particular way. So I think it's really risky to, to assume that the culture from which a child comes tells us how they, how they best learn. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm just saying it's not the only thing. And almost every analysis looking at differences between groups finds that the variation within the group is much greater than the variation between the groups. So culturally responsive or culturally relevant pedagogy is important, but it's not the end point. We have to go further than that to identify the individual strengths and weaknesses, the individual's aspirations. And so for me, really, it's all a consequence of David Auswell's basic point what the learner already knows, the experiences that learner brings to the classroom. So yes, by talking about the, the experiences that children have outside school, that culturally relevant pedagogy, you are actually finding cognitive equipment that you can use to develop your own ideas with, with the pupils. And so you're actually 
You know, it, it, that is all just formative assessment. It's just starting starting from where the pupil is, finding out from them you know, what they think about these sorts of things. And so for me, I think differentiation in terms of prior achievement is necessary. For everything else, it's probably, even if it's effective, it's not a good use of time. And some of the sort of underlying principles you just talked about are reflected in our first two Australian professional standards for teaching, which are know your students and know how they learn. And if you know those two things, then that's a pretty good foundation for what you then do next. Right. But, you know, know how they learn. I mean, we, we do actually have to be quite careful here because the, I've certainly seen many people take from those standards this idea that children learn in different ways. And I don't think the evidence for that is very strong. So to a first order of magnitude, you know everything about how to teach that pupil if you know where they are right now. I said, I, when I used to train teachers, I used to say to them, teaching is interesting because students are so different. It's only possible because they're so similar. So for two students with similar levels of prior knowledge and similar cultural experiences, the best teaching for one will almost always be the same as the best teaching for the other. And so you know, we, we can actually overstate this, the uniqueness of each individual. Yes, they are unique, but their brains work in remarkably similar ways Thank you, Dylan. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together, and so I'm going to move to the final five questions of what I call okay. the quickfire enlightening round. The first of which is, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? Uh, that my wife and I fostered teenagers in London for 15 years. We, neither of us wanted children of our own, but having, and neither of us wanted anything to do with young children since we'd both been secondary school teachers. So over a 15-year period, I think we had something like 15 teenagers um, in our home, um, uh, no more than five at any one time. And that was probably one of the most professionally rewarding things, just because we got to be parents. We got to be middle-class parents of working-class kids. And just seeing how little sense school made to a lot of the children that we were fostering made us see education in a completely different way. If we'd had children of our own, they'd been brought up with our, you know, ability to negotiate schools, and they would, they would have been probably very successful. And that was just a real eye opener. Wow! And as you say, you called it a, a professionally rewarding experience, yeah, even though yeah. it was obviously a personally rewarding one. Yeah, it was, it was personally rewarding, of course. You know, you've got this idea. You know, we've got, you know, we were approved for short-term fostering, so some kids stayed for two weeks, one stayed for seventeen years. Uh, so that was, yeah, personally rewarding, but we hadn't expected to be so useful to see education from the other side, if you like, uh, um, because as I said, if we'd had our own children, we probably wouldn't have actually had those, had those kinds of perspectives. And what about something that's currently on your desk? It's just the issue of scale. Um, I become clearer and clearer in my mind about you know, there's just no point in trying to figure out how to change 20 or 30 classrooms. We have to be working out how to change 200,000 classrooms in England, 2 million classrooms in the United States, you know, 100,000 classrooms in Australia. That, I think, is, is, is the major challenge because it, it, it's, it's certainly the hardest work I've ever done, thinking about how you can bring policymakers on board and get them to understand why a lot of what they're suggesting isn't going to be effective. But it's just very, very messy. And I don't know how much longer I'll keep doing this work, but 
that I think is my major goal now is scale. And who is someone that inspires you in your work? So many people. Um, Doug Lamoff, the guy who wrote Teach Like a Champion, his, his pursuit of the craft of teaching, of trying to codify what the expert teachers do. Dan Willingham, a cognitive scientist, who's really sort of applied his mind to finding cognitive science that supports, supports teachers. Tom Bennett and his establishment of Research Ed, a kind of grassroots teacher-focused organization that really gives a voice to teachers, encourages them to just talk about the research they're doing in their own classrooms. People like Greg Ashman in Victoria, who is a PhD candidate, school leader, and a, and a teacher, blogging about issues. Uh, I don't know where he gets the energy from. Ollie Lovell, who I already mentioned, doing some very nice work on interviewing people and synthesizing those kinds of expert views into ways that teachers can, can access them. There's this whole, the whole way in which the internet, uh, particularly social media, has created communities of teachers. Uh, that, I, I think, is, is just really exciting. And what's one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about? A week ago, I'd have said my, my first trip to Australia in over two years, but I'm here right now. So this, this is exciting. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So my mo- okay. So tomorrow, I'm presenting two teachers in Australia, and I'm pretty excited about that. The idea of actually getting back to face-to-face working. Um, I'm surprised how well I kind of adjusted to Zoom professional development, but I am so looking forward to getting back to working face-to-face with teachers in an interactive way. Excellent. Yes, I think a lot of people are looking forward to that. Uh, And if you were to, we've talked about quite a lot in terms of your thinking about education, but if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? I think it's to do with the things we've been talking about already, but it was a chemistry teacher in Greenwich in South East London. And she was working with Christine Harrison and myself and others on formative assessment. And she said, it's all about making the pupils' voices louder and making the teachers' hearing better. So that focus on the learner and the teacher as really tuned into the learner yeah. and yeah. their learning. To, yeah, and listening. And, you know, we see this shift when we work with teachers on formative assessment. Uh, Brent Davis at the University of Alberta coined this distinction between evaluative listening and interpretive listening. So some teachers, they ask questions, pupils answer, and they just listen for the correct answer. And if a pupil gives the wrong answer, they say, no, close, nearly, nice. But they're not really paying attention. They're just listening for the correct answer. So to that teacher, all incorrect answers are equivalent. It just means the students didn't get it yet. But to the interpretive listening teacher, Wrong answers are interesting and useful. They give you information about where that student is coming from that you can then use to respond more appropriately to their learning needs. That shift from listening for correct answers to listening for meaning in students' responses, I think is the most profound shift that happens in the teachers when they begin to embrace this process of classroom formative assessment. Thank you. And Dylan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Edgy Salon. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Edgy Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network. 
by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media. 